Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. And it says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So we get this negative feel immediately by reading these brief verses. It's a, it's a heavy understanding to hear from a father call his sons and daughters no mercy and not my people. And specifically Jezreel, when we'll, we'll take a look at that in a little bit. But I want you to picture this. These are hard sayings. These are difficult uh, negative names. And this is kind of a gloomy passage. I mean, it's a gloomy day, first of all. Many of us are just excited that we got the week off because of Thanksgiving coming up. But other than that, it's a gloomy day, and it's a gloomy passage to go through. It's, it's like, man, this is, I should, have, I should have just stood home instead of reading this. This is kind of sad. This is kind of depressing to, to hear this. But, but I want to put this into perspective as what we've been studying this entire time. I want you to get the concept of years upon years upon years upon years of unfaithfulness of God's people. And I'm talking about roughly 1,500 years. If, if you've studied a bit the Old Testament, if you kind of know the notion of a little bit of the Old Testament you've seen from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Exodus, going through the book of Leviticus and Numbers and even Deuteronomy, the second generation of exiles, of people that were rescued from the hands of the Egyptians, then you kind of get this sense of infidelity all the time. It's been occurring since their inception. And, this, and the people of God have been very unfaithful to him, even when God has demonstrated his faithfulness to them. God has been faithful. God has been uh, sovereign, had, had them in sovereign care. God has watched over his people time and time again. There is no reason why his people should have ever abandoned God. But we come to about 1,500 years later, and the people are in the same state. We studied this at the beginning of verses 1 through 3. And so you guys understand this a little bit. If you've been here with us, you, you, you kind of understood what that means of, of how many times they've been unfaithful. 
And the kings that, that governed them were completely unfaithful to God. They were, they were worshiping other idols. They were bowing down to other gods. And they were bringing in these cultic practices from, from kingdoms like Assyria. And they were in, in, trying to embed them within the people of Israel. And God was saying, this is not what I called you to be. I told you you were distinct and holy from the nations that surround you. You're not supposed to be like them. You're not supposed to bring in these practices of, of idol worship. You're not supposed to be... Uh, bringing in these practices of prostitution and, and giving your daughters up to prostitution. This is not who you're called to be. And so now, they have been warned. If you guys remember our first or I think our second week, you recall the name of Amos, another prophet of, of Israel, of Judah, I'm sorry, and he warns Israel to be careful. The judgment of God is coming. And he warns them. But Israel pays no attention to him. So there has been warnings. There have been times of God just demonstrating grace upon grace upon grace. It was difficult for me. I had to do the homework with my daughter yesterday. She has Sunday school homework. And uh, so I hope she gets it, the answer right this, this, this morning. Uh, she had Sunday school homework. And one of the, the words that she had to figure out was grace. And she asked me, what does grace mean? And I was like, and how do I explain to a six-year-old girl what grace means? So I was, you know, in my theological understanding, I was like, well, grace is this great, I'm trying to bring this theology to this little girl. And I just kind of told her, I'm like, well, grace, you don't deserve. You don't deserve grace at all. And so she looked at me and she was like, well, what does that mean? I was like, yeah, forget it. I, I give up, you know. <laughs> I, could, I, I can't talk to little kids, man. That's why they got the Sunday school teachers on play. I was trying, I kept trying to explain it to her, but... What, what, what we understand is that these people, like Israel, what I was getting her to try to understand, I was like, well, remember when, you, when you're not obedient? And remember when you, you misbehave? And remember when you say things to your mom that you shouldn't say? What do we do? We, we kind of just uh, tell you to stop and punish you. And sometimes we, we need to take certain things away from you. We, we don't let you do this. We don't let you do that. So think about it. If I don't do that to you, then I'm just letting you slide and giving you kind of grace to just keep going on the way with what you're doing. And to a certain extent, God was doing that with his people. They kept messing up, and for some reason, God kept demonstrating grace to them. His love was overflowing. And, and if we really understand the Old, Old Testament, we understand the reason why God was doing that was because he was faithful to his covenant. He had promised them that he will keep them in his hands forever. He was just being faithful to what he had promised them. God doesn't go back on his promises. God stays faithful to his promises. So we see this notion, and now we come to this point in the passage where goodness, God is telling the prophet, his, his, his person, to bring this a message of communication to Israel. Now he's telling them, you're going to call your sons and daughters these negative names to prove a sign to unbelief of Israel. Now, this, is, this puts us into perspective because, once again, God could have easily just spoken what he wanted to say to Israel. He did it with Jonah, where Jonah just spoke the message and the, and the people came to repentance. But in Hosea's case, God uses Hosea as a sign you can see Hosea. You can touch Hosea. You know who he is. You know his, you're going to know his family. God uses Hosea to prove his love 
for his people. They are going to see in Hosea a tangible form of God's grace to them. And it's, you know, Hosea, I guess, is out of luck at this case because God just chooses them to be the sign. But Hosea has to really live with this type of marriage. What was one of the first commandments that, that God told them to do in verse 3? Go marry an immoral wife. Go marry a prostitute. Now, you guys remember that last week we said that she wasn't necessarily a prostitute, but she had the symptoms of a prostitute. She acted as a prostitute. It was her character that, she, that, that, that proved that she was like a prostitute. And God's telling this man, go marry her. You're going to have children with, with this type of woman. This is the woman you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You're going to stand at the altar and say, till death do us part. That's what God was telling him to do. And what did, what did we learn at the end of verse 3? That Hosea walked and chose himself a wife of ill repute, an immoral woman. Hosea was obedient. So this metaphor begins to intensify as we begin to see this life. You know, in the later chapters, even when we get to chapter 2, you're going to see a distinct uh, kind of, of, of conversation that God has directly with Israel. And then in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, Israel is, is, is being kind of condemned directly by God. But chapters 1 and chapters 3 are the only chapters that we really see this relationship between Hosea and this woman called Gomer. And he pays attention. He follows the first imperative from God, and he marries this woman. And then the second command, if you guys remember from last week, the second command that Hosea was to do was to have children with her. You are going to raise a family with this woman. So we get this intensification of, of, uh, of the sign that God wants to show his unbelieving people. They are going to see in Hosea what God has been trying to show them these entire, all these years. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, we have the setting of the first naming. So we're going to have three names that we're going to explore today. I hope I could finish all three names. If not, we have next week. But we have the setting of, of three namings of children in Hosea's marriage, in his family life. I want you to picture this. These kids will be named negative. We're, we're getting the sense of God's judgment upon his people. We're getting the sense of God's anger and justice over his people. If you're a parent, you know what this means. You're, you're at that moment where time and time again you've said, what? I told you. I told you not to do it. I told you not to do it. And then what happens? They do it. And, and what happens? The consequences that you knew were going to uh, happen, happen. And so you're in this setting with your kids, and they know they've messed up. They know that mama is about to take off the belt. Papa's going to take off the belt, and it's time for punishment, and it's time for judgment and justice. So your children are sitting there looking at you with, merciful eyes and, and begging God, please, please take my mother away from me at this very moment. I don't want to see her face. 
They're, they're in that moment when they're about to receive judgment. That's the setting that this fam, family kind of uh, metaphor begins to take place in us. That's why we get introduced to these children where now we get kids that are being poured out the wrath of God over their lives, the anger of God over Hosea's life. And, it, and it's, again, an intensification of the metaphor between God and Israel God and his children, and Hosea and his wife. Israel is at that setting right now when they're looking at God, and God is about to bring down justice. It's, it's incredible. It's like, it was like prophetic that yesterday I had to explain to my little daughter Grace, and I also had to explain to her what justice means. And the homework is, it said, de- decipher this word, and it said justice, and she's like, what does justice mean? And I was like, man, this homework is, this homework's intense. And I had to explain to her, justice means you get what you deserve. You break the law, what happens? You get what you deserve. I, I love, my, my father would always tell us, tell us this in, in, in his preachings. He'd say, he'd say if, if you get caught speeding and you're going 85 miles an hour and you get caught speeding, and what happens? You immediately get upset and you get angry that you got caught speeding uh, down the expressway, but, but he, he would always remind us, but what about all the times you didn't get caught? <laughs> like, remember all the other times that you were going 90 miles an hour down the expressway and you never got caught? And now you happen to get caught. Now you get what's coming to you. You get justice. You get what you deserve. And so these people, Israel, are in that setting. They're about to get what they deserve. Everything that we read in Hosea up until this point, and even in the coming chapters, all this anger that we're going to read about from God, this isn't God just being angry. This is God showing justice. You can never erase that from your, your mind, and that's where we get this negative setback or pushback from the modern man, the postmodern woman, where they say that whole Bible scheme and, and, and bloody imagery, that's just ancient. That is unnecessary. We do not need to know about a God who is wrathful and and judgmental and and brings wrath upon his people. That's old school thought. That's the way the old ancient minds thought. That's what they needed to suppress their their feelings and their emotions. We don't need that. And and, and so post-modernity tells us that we don't need to pay attention to what the Bible says in this. But I want you to get to understand your God. This is who your God is. God shows justice. If you want to bring this into a modern context, why do you think hell exists? There's a big controversy about hell even now, even amongst Christians. Oh, hell can't be real. God wouldn't send people to hell. Eternal punishment? Come on. That's why I don't even go to church. That's why I don't even believe in God. That's why I don't even believe in this nonsense of the Bible. You're telling me that a good, great, amazing, wonderful God of love will create a place for, of eternal condemnation where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? You're telling me that that's a loving God? Well, that's the setback. That's the pushback against this. But God is a God of justice. And if God is to be just, then people... Who, whose sins are not taken away by the blood of Jesus, will get what they deserve. People in hell deserve to be in hell. People in heaven 
do not deserve to be in heaven. That's grace. The fact that you and me are enjoying this moment of grace, that's why we're so appreciative. Thank you, God, because we're in a time of grace when we can still come to you and repent and ask for forgiveness. But there's other people that don't have this opportunity, and they got what they deserve. So when you put it in that context, it's, yeah, it becomes a little bit, oh, man, this is, this is rough. Well, this is the God of your Bible. This is the God of your faith. God demonstrates justice. We can't hide that. We should not suppress that. We should not try to uh, domesticate who God is. God is not a little pussycat. Oh, nice little, nice little cat kitten where he's just cute. God is a God who demonstrates justice. And the naming of these children, the fact that God sets up a family to demonstrate this will be very evident as we go through this. The first name that we come across in verse 4 is the name Jezreel. What does Jezreel mean? It's interesting that, that we're going to be studying the meanings of the names in, in, the, in this passage. But Jezreel's meaning isn't really that important, and I'll show you why. Jezreel means God sows, like the seed. But in a sense, God is not pointing to Jezreel as his first son as just, oh, this means God sows. So your son will be a, a farmer or something. No. What, what God is trying to point out in the naming of his first son is a location. The location of Jezreel. Now, you may not know the geography of the ancient world of Israel, but let me tell you what happened at Jezreel. And what God is implying when he's asking his Hosea to name his son Jezreel. In 1 Kings, you don't have to go there, but 1 Kings, it talks about the story of this man who had a field named Naboth. Naboth had a, a wonderful field, and it was a field that was so beautiful that the king Ahab of Israel was jealous of it, and he wanted to take it for himself. Ahab wasn't man enough to do it, so his wife Jezebel steps into the picture and she develops a plan to take away the field of Naboth and give it to her husband. Nice wife, right? Well, Jezebel plans a horrific scene where Naboth will be pulled from his land and be, will be stoned to death in the field of Jezreel, in the city of Jezreel. We get this concept of horrific scenes occurring in Jezreel. And every time the Bible starts referring to Jezreel, it's, it's a reminder of what was happening at Jezreel. We get another scene uh, in a couple, a couple years later with the king Jehu, and who annihilates the dynasty of Ahab's father, the Amrite dynasty. These kings are annihilated by Jehu on, in Jezreel. Not only that, he, Jehu kills Ahab's enemies from the dynasty of Amri, like King Jor Jor Joram of Israel. He murders him, and then he brings all the people 
of that house, all his servants, all his family members, all his children. There were, the Bible says there was about 70 in 2 Kings chapter 10. They bring him all to this field and Jehu massacres them in Jezreel. So what is God saying? Name your son Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel becomes synonymous with bloodshed, with murder, with hatred, with injustice. It's a field of blood. To the ears of the Israelite people in, in Hosea's time, this would be like calling one of our kids 9-11. It would be like calling one of our kids, your name will be Columbine. Or your name will be Katrina. Or your name will be one of these horrific scenes. Your name will be Auschwitz from Nazi Germany in a death camp. And what, what would that incur? A normal person would be like, you're naming your kid what? You should name your kid Kanye, you know? <laughs> you're naming your kid what? Like, it'll immediately bring to mind Horrific scenes. How are you going to name your son 9-11? How are you going to name your son these horrific... What does that mean? And, and Hosea will have to bring his baby boy into the world with the name Jezreel. It's a horrendous name. God remembered what happened at Jezreel. And what the verse really says... I, I took some time to translate this, and it's a very difficult passage. But at the beginning of verse 4, God says, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will visit with bloodshed. The ESV says, Call his name Jezreel, for just, in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu. But if you take the Hebrew a, a little bit more literal and you you organize the words the way it is in Hebrew, what it's saying is, I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. What he's saying is, what happened at, Je at Jezreel, the massacre that happened at Jezreel, that type of bloodshed will be put upon the house of Israel, will be put upon the house of Jehu. So that's what God is saying when he's naming these, ki these kids that, it's a hor horrible name. I will visit is the word that God uses instead of punish. It, it means bring. It means show them what they did in the past upon the house of Jehu. It's a hard, hard thing to come across. And then verse 5 goes a little bit more into detail. And it says, on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Jezreel is a place of bloodshed. Jezreel is a place of war, of, of, of extreme massacre. Jezreel is a place of that no one would, no one's going to remember positively. It's going to be an infamous name. And God says, I will break the bow of Israel over the valley of Jezreel. Now, this is interesting because the bow of Israel was a sign for the army. It was a sign for war. And God says, I'm going to break it. What does that mean? 
Jezreel is a bloodshed place, a location where bloodshed and massacres occurred. And now Israel, their, their opportunity to defend themselves, their opportunity to fight back, their opportunity to set up camp will be broken. I will break the bow of Israel. And, and what does that mean? On that day, that means it's coming. It's coming soon. I was talking to, to Henry earlier about this, and I told him that, that in all the times that the Hebrew, the Hebrew here in Hosea says on that day, it's eschatological, meaning in the future, in a later time when the Messiah comes sometime. In this case, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel. It's talking about it's about to happen. Judgment of God is coming. And how do we know that? Because... Assyria will wipe the capital clean in 722. It's about 30 years after this was said, Assyria comes in and wipes out Israel, wipes out its capital, Samaria. So that happens. That's what God was going to do. God said he was going to do it. And what happened? He did it. And his son will bear that name. I don't know if you want to call your son Jezreel. If your wife is pregnant and you're having a son. It sounds pretty cool, but it means a lot of negative stuff. In the valley of Jezreel. So he will break the bow in the valley of Jezreel. Check this out. This is, this is incredible. You don't have to go there. Just write it down. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 10. It talks about Jabesh, another king. One of the last kings of Israel. And it says that Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Iblim and put him to death and reigned in his place. What does that mean? What does that have to do with anything we're talking about? Well, Iblim is located about five miles south in the valley of Jezreel. And this assertion of power and authority was happening and the same way that the first dynasty came to power through bloodshed occurred that the last dynasty came to an end with bloodshed in the valley of Jezreel. It ended the same way it began. So this name, though it means God sows, it's not really about what it means. It's about the location of what happened. That's what God is telling Hosea to do. Again, that's you and me as a modern reader. We're saying, goodness, this is, this is bad. Well, you have to understand. That's why we spent so much time on verses 1, 2, and 3. We have to understand everything that was going on before this. This is bad because now Israel is getting what they deserve. And the people are going to see it in the life of Hosea. Let's look at verses 6 through 7. The naming of the second. She conceived again and bore a daughter. First one was a son. What was the name of the first son? Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name, what? No mercy. 
For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Okay. So we have this brief section here where God says, now that you have a second born, a daughter, you're going to name her No Mercy. The, in some versions, they use the actual transliteration of the Hebrew, which is Lo Ruama, means literally not pitied or not loved. I don't know if you're a father and you have a daughter, but to name your daughter not loved? What is God saying here? God is saying, name her no mercy, not loved, because I am not going to show mercy no more to Israel. I am not going to withhold my wrath and my vengeance from Israel anymore. And so you're going to have to call your daughter not pitied, not loved. I'm done. Now this, is, now this is hard for us to hear because if you've studied God, his essential attribute is to show mercy. The fact that God is God is, is the, the reason we're alive because he shows mercy. How many of us should not have been, how many of us shouldn't be alive right now? How many of us should not be in the positions that we're at right now? The fact that we're here is because God shows mercy. The fact that we're here is because God has given us love and giving us undeserving grace, and that's the reason we're here. But here God is saying, I'm not going to show mercy. What did Israel do to get God so angry? Well, we know the 1,500-year history of what Israel has done. We know the current setting that they're in. This daughter was going to carry the name of a of a people that worked hard to not deserve mercy. This daughter was going to represent a nation that said, we don't need God's mercy because we have other gods that satisfy our needs. She was going to bear that image, that name of not being loved. What a dreadful name to call a little girl. It implies immediate rejection from the father. Here's where commentators start to theologize a little bit about what this means. So a lot of the, the commentators that write on Hosea, they're like, well, you know, the, the reason why Hosea called her this or why God told him to call her that was because his wife was immoral. So it's possible that she, in her immorality, had a baby from another guy. And, and that's why Hosea had to say, well, this, this ain't my girl. This ain't, my, this ain't my daughter. I ain't going to support her. You know, and, and kind of they're bringing in that modern kind of context, but never do we get that in the text. God told Hosea to bear children. God told Hosea to have kids. This is his daughter. And in this context, he has to call his little girl, I will no longer have mercy on you. In a sense, abandoning her to the troubles of this world. Kind of like what other fathers have done. Maybe they don't name their daughter no mercy, but they've left her without mercy. And she's been abandoned. So this is what the imagery that we begin to have with, with this little girl. 
That she's not going to have mercy. She's not going to, she's going to be abandoned by her father. Her father's going to leave her. Why is this estrangement so bitter between God and his people? Why is he representing the people of God in this little girl by saying no mercy? Does he not like her? Is she not his real daughter? God has rejected Israel. Here's the point. God has rejected Israel. That's hard. That's that's tough to know and to understand at this very moment. God has set this wonderful uh, people up and God has lavished them with grace upon grace upon grace. God has showered them with love and he has come to a limit where he says, I will no longer have mercy. What is God saying? I reject you. We remember a little bit Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. You don't have to go there, but you could write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 17. This, this is part of the reasoning in God. God says, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and, my, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. That's the key. Why? Have all of these evils come upon them? This is Deuteronomy. This is hundreds of years earlier. They were already seeing. God was already showing Moses what was going to happen. Why are these evils among them? Why has God rejected his people? Because God has been kicked out from the camp. If you guys remember what we've been studying, these people have bowed to other gods. These people have absorbed other customs. These people have been going after other gods. And the language Hosea is going to begin to use is going is to go like this. You have prostituted yourselves before other gods. That's the language Hosea is going to begin to use. You're going to read it. And you're going to be like, ooh. That's what God is showing. The reason this justice is coming is because God is not amongst them. Not because God has himself put himself out, but they have been, but God himself has been rejected. So now God rejects Israel. Not only Jehu, you got to pay attention to the words here. Look, read it again. In verse 6, he says, She conceived and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. In the first verse, he's referencing Jehu, but now he's bringing in all of Israel. This isn't just a certain group. This is everybody. God's rejection goes throughout all of Israel. And it helps us understand why he is going to bring destruction upon them. Let's read the verse more carefully. I will, in verse 7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah... That's the contrast. So he's not going to have mercy on the house of Israel, but he's going to have mercy on the house of Judah. I want you to keep that in mind. If you go back a little bit to verse 6, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Okay, let's stop right there in verse 6. Some other translations say this. 
At the end of verse 6, they say, For I will no longer pity, have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. The NIV, which is the popular version, says that I should at all forgive them. The ESV, as we read, For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I want you to understand this. This phrase here, in its literal context, this is the beauty of the Bible. In its literal context, literal Hebrew, it means I will surely forgive them. Now, now I want you to read it with that in mind. Now, let's read it again. Verse 6. Call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive, to forgive them at all. So now erase that and say, to surely forgive them. Call her name, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel. I will surely forgive them. What? Doesn't that just contradict what the other line says? Well, this is what you got to understand. This is, this sets up, I, I had a lot of trouble with this. But this sets up the rest of the book. Israel's character and attitude to God, some way, somehow, at the end of the book, will be restored. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, I will have mercy on you. Call her name Mercy. And say, like, well, you just called her no mercy. I will have mercy. So you begin to like, what's going on here? What it's setting up is God's grace. Again. We get the picture of God's judgment, God's anger. God's going to come down hard. And yet he still gives this glimmer of hope within the, within the same verse. He says, I will not have mercy on my people. Within that same verse, God says, I will surely forgive them. Once again, what God says in this is no matter how many times you have rejected me, you have prostituted yourself before other gods, because you are my people, I will surely forgive you. Even though I have called you not my people, I will surely forgive you. That, that is mind-boggling. That just destroys every concept that we have of God, of not only just being a, a, a lovey-dovey God, but a God that does demonstrate judgment. Because nowhere here does he take back his judgment. He executes it. It's like, when you're standing before your parents, right? And I remember growing up in an old school Latino home with a mother that was very old school, Latina, Mexican. And I remember, I remember this, and I would put her on the spot a lot in, in, in the Spanish service, but I remember, I remember her telling me, you just did this. I remember one time, it was really bad. I broke a window at another church. It was really bad. I threw a baseball through a window. Can you believe that? Anyway, I, I, I got what I deserved. Uh, she tells me, when we get home, I want you to go to your room, and I want you to pray. 
I want you to pray for forgiveness so that I don't hit you as hard. And I think I prayed that day the hardest I've ever prayed in my life. I went into that room and I threw myself on the ground. I said, Lord, have mercy. You know, I went all out. And I was hoping that judgment wouldn't come. And I was like, man, I, I, think, I think, you know, I saw her walk in. And I'm like, I think, I'm, I'm crying. I'm looking at her with, and, and she gave me what I deserved. <laughs> I didn't love her any less. I didn't hate her anymore. I got what I deserved. I was hoping I didn't get judgment, but I got what I deserved. And nowhere here in the text will that say it. God loves the people of Israel, but he will judge them. But in that judgment, he will also say, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. And that just breaks our heart because during this entire time, as we have seen, God has done that a lot already. We've seen this time and time again. He's done it. And what do we expect the people of Israel to do at this moment again? They're going to they're gonna get forgive, forgiven, and then they're just going to go right back and do what they've always done and put God to the test. But the thing here that we have to learn is, first of all, when God gives us these instructions, when God pours out his grace towards us, it will never exempt us from his judgment. That will happen if we undermine or disobey. The biggest problem with Israel was disobedience. God said, don't take on the customs of other nations. Simple. Don't do as the Assyrians do. And they did it. The Syrians began to sacrifice children. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that Israel was sacrificing children to false gods, but it can be implied that they took on the, the cult prostitute custom of offering their daughters to prostitution. It can imply that Israel was also sacrificing their sons in fire. God said, don't do that. So at that time, when God tells Hosea, call your daughter, no mercy, that moment is a moment. For this moment, I will not have mercy on you. It isn't forever. When, when God's hand is upon a person, you, you read this in the Psalms. David says, take your hand off of me. Your hand has... David says, my bones are breaking. I feel a fever, the, the Hebrew word for fever inside his bones because the Lord's hand was upon him. When God punishes the person, it hurts. It's torment. That's the hand of God. But that hand is not going to be there forever. Be a moment when God takes his hand off. And you will be expected to have learned your lesson. You will be have expected to know the judgment of God 
but also know that he's bringing you back. So the whole message, even from here on out, this, this portion is, is the entire message of the book of Hosea. We didn't, we didn't get to the last name, but, but I, want you to, I want to set that up right now. What we're going to keep reading is God putting more judgment on his people, but then reminding them at the, at the beginning, at the end, that it will not be forever. That's why I'm just going to read, I'm going to read this one verse to you in chapter 2. The last part of, of verse 1. Skip the first couple lines. And it says, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. What was the daughter called? No mercy. What did she receive? Mercy. We can all thank God for receiving mercy. Amen? Let's stand up. And as people that have come to church and, and have come to worship God, you've, you've understood some things. You've understood that God does love and God does shower us with blessings. And many of us have this American notion of God of all we need from God is blessings. Oh, God, give me, give me. We see American television or we see uh, church TV. If you look at TBN or I don't even know what the other ones are in English. Or if you even turn on Channel 5, I think on Saturday mornings at 9, you get preachers that will preach to you all of these good things from God. And, and that's expected. You know, God, God does give his children good things. But you can never forget that God judges his people. And that's what the message is of Hosea is so important for us. So I, I pray that, that you guys dig in with us and keep coming back and keep reading Hosea on your own because you're going to be surprised by what God is, is, is telling us. But let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we come to you as a humble people, thanking you for, for even though being in that position where many times we don't deserve or, or are withheld mercy, you have not promised that forever. Lord, you've shown these people, you've shown our lives, you've shown my life to be a merciful, gracious God. And we humbly honor you and thank you for that grace that you've poured down over us, that you've given to us when we have not needed it. Lord, I pray that that as we keep learning from Scripture, from this message, that as a church we grow to know who our God is. We don't want a caricature of God. We don't want the cartoon version of God. We want to know who God is. Because it is in that knowing of who God is, we understand who God calls us to be. So, Lord, let us walk in rectitude, in obedience to this great God, because you will call us to judgment, but you will also show us mercy. Thank you for holding us in your hands. Better to be in your hands than in anybody else's. And we leave today knowing that, that you're looking upon us, and you have eyes of grace towards us, and you're Mercy and your 
Grace is showering over us today. In Jesus' name, amen.